Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Please remain standing. The words for the sermon text this morning will be Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Our good God, Father and Savior, we give you thanks for all of the blessings that you have bestowed on us today. Increase them and multiply them as we learn from your word. Amen. You may be seated. People of God, today is the final Sunday of the Christian year before the season of Advent. That's right. No matter what the Hallmark Channel tells you, it is not Christmas yet. So we are at the end of a world right here. We are coming to a long day's dying. Notice the scriptures that were read on the stage. Uh, we, the last part of Revelation, the very, very end is what we're looking at today. So this Sunday is traditionally set aside to remember not the beginning of Christ's coming, but to remember the end for which Christ came, uh, even to begin with, which is to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This Sunday is the Sunday of Christ the King. Here we are called to remember, and this psalm helps us remember, that the coming Christ of Christmas we are soon to celebrate is forever the eternal king of the cosmos. So let's look closely at Psalm 24 and its implications for us this week. Historically, uh, Psalm 24 is a liturgical song that recounts either uh, David or Solomon taking the Ark of the Covenant to its final resting place on Mount Zion, either the tabernacle or the temple is what's being imagined here. But prophetically, this psalm also sums up the four-part harmony that we've been singing all year of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Immediately, look what happens at the beginning of the psalm. The first two verses, we are reminded that Christ was first creator. Verses 1 and 2 are plain. The earth is the Lord, and all that fills it, all places, all peoples, belong to the Lord precisely because, as we read in Genesis 1, He sent His Spirit 
by the word over the waters to cause dry land to appear. Over and out of the chaotic waters, the dark deep, in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, God brought the land that we read about in Psalm 24, 1 and 2. And now we're squarely in the context that David has in mind. By hearkening us back to creation, David reminds us that this land that God made in the beginning has a sacred topography. It's not flat. In fact, Ezekiel 16 calls it the holy mountain of God. It had three phases. The Garden of Eden that was planted in the east side, the land of Eden around that, and then the land outside of Eden, which was around that. This is where man worshipped, where man lived, and then where man worked on these three levels. And at the peak of this three-story holy hill was what Psalm 24 calls the holy place, where God and Adam would meet. Adam, the first king, Yahweh, the king of creation. Adam would ascend this hill, Sabbath after Sabbath, to rest in the Lord's presence and to undergo an inspection and to hear, we know from the beginning, to hear, well done, for what his clean hands and his pure heart were to accomplish without any deceit or guile in his mouth. The Lord, in turn, would prolong and expand the benediction that he began over Adam and creation at the beginning. He would receive blessing and righteousness, the psalm says, covenant faithfulness from Yahweh, David says in verses 5 and 6. And as his royal priest continued to work and to seek his face and to rest, to accomplish his task, to form and fill the creation as God's image, he would receive his ultimate glory and reward, generations from Adam added to him as his reward, worshiping workers to join him in this grand act that he is to accomplish. But as you're following the psalm, at the end of verse 6, we have selah, right? Somewhere to pause. You know that's a musical term, but it probably is a musical term that actually meant something like repeat what was said at the beginning. And so we go back. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we continue on. But when we pause we have to notice that from verse 7 forward, the music of the psalm strikes a sour note, at least a dissonant note, because look what happens in verse 7. The procession of a glorious king through the gates of paradise. But we know that's not how the original story in the beginning goes, right? David is now obviously deviating from the creational context that he has in mind here, because Adam did not come through as the glorious, victorious king when tempted by the serpent. Quite the opposite, right? He did not fight the good fight of faith, leading a train of faithful, his wife, and maybe children behind him in this continual victory. He didn't seek the face of Yahweh to ask him for help against the serpent in this battle. Instead, he lifted up his soul to what is false. His heart became impure and corrupted. And his hands were defiled by his transgression, taking the fruit which he was commanded not to take. And as the devilish cherry on top, he spoke falsely against God himself and his only neighbor, Eve, in Yahweh's court. So whoever's at the end of this psalm, it's not Adam. Adam was not welcomed in through these gates. He was banished from these gates. 
from the presence of God because of his transgression. He was driven down the hill and across the river that flowed out of the land of Eden in exile to dwell away from Yahweh's holy hill. And to ensure this, those ancient gates and doors that we read about were barred. The eternal gates were closed and two guardian cherub with flaming swords kept him from re-entering. And if he would, it would only be through chopping and burning that he would come back through. Yet even here, God shows his faithfulness for his creation, his love for his creatures. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world is habitable, even if it was devoid of God's special presence that was there at Eden. And moreover, the world and all who are in it belong to him. He loves his creatures. Thus, he promised, additionally, that there would be one strong and mighty in battle who would come and undo the sanctions placed on the serpent-cursed ground and unbar those ancient gates. However, human nature, corrupted by sin and ignorance, could no longer ascend the hill of the Lord Precisely because, David says in another psalm, no one seeks after God. The generations, the faithful that are described in the psalm are called those who seek the Lord. David says no one does that in humanity. We could not even begin to scale the mountain of God because we don't even have the desire to do so. Our wills are bound. We imagine it better to create and craft our own glory outside of Eden, away from the King of Glory, uh, than anything uh, away from, toward God, out of the howling wilderness could give us. Indeed, as the stories after Adam throughout Genesis testify again and again, man prefers himself to lift up himself falsely to idols than he does the living God. And we have pictures of this, don't we? All through the rest of the Old Testament. Not only in stories, but also think of the Mosaic and Davidic covenants. The tabernacle and the temple that we talked about in the beginning. Those were like horizontal mountains laid on their side. They've got those three layers that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. And what happens as you get closer to God's immediate presence in those places, there's a Levite standing there with a sword ready to chop you down if you get too close to the glory of God in the holiest place. Except one time, right? Except for the high priest once a year. This here even is signaling, shadowing for us the fact Adam did lose something, but there is going to be a greater Adam, a new Adam, who will come and regain our access by a full and bodily ascent. But David here at the end of the psalm, verses 7 through 10, makes an odd turn, or at least it's unexpected when we're reading up to this point. If you know the story as he's meditating on it, when he envisions the one who's going to come, the one who is going to accomplish this great work of reversal and bring the presence and peace of Yahweh again, immediately available to those who seek him, he envisions a warrior and a strong one, no doubt, he leads the heavenly host. He's strong. He's mightily in battle. He's glorious in appearance and position and title. Yet this warrior king, David says three times, with a double inquiry, a question, it's almost as if he can't believe it, this warrior that he sees is Yahweh himself who's going to do this. David is making here 
a very, very profound point for us. He is telling us that Yahweh, the king of creation, is, on, is also Yahweh, the only king of redemption. Yahweh himself, in the flesh, is the only one who is going to be able to undo the wrong and the curse that Adam has brought on humanity. And thus, we celebrate the story that we are soon to begin again. The eternal Son, the Word of the Father, the one by whom and through whom all things existed, in humility did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, but humbled himself and took on our flesh and our nature. Yahweh, in his greatest act of glory, dawns his own creation, born of a Virgin Mary, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In life, the absolute purity of his clean hands is clearly seen. But what's more, his clean hands were so clean that they touched all, uh, all, or all that he touched with them were also made clean in life. He never lifted up his soul to idols, but he always prayed with loud cries and tears to his Father by the Holy Spirit. Never once did he speak deceitfully, but in love he spoke grace and truth to all who had ears to hear. He always sought the God of Jacob as the true and final son of Adam. Though he alone deserved blessing and righteousness from the Father, the clean hands of the Lord Jesus were nailed to a cross. His pure heart was pierced by a spear. His undefiled mouth was filled with sour wine, and his eyes that always looked to heaven for hope were closed in the darkness of death, what seemed like hopelessly. And it looked from the outside as if David's question here, who will ascend the hill of the Lord, was always going to be a negative. No one ever not even the most righteous man who ever lived could do it. But we know that's not how the story ends. We know, as Paul says, that Jesus Christ descended to the lowest places to bring up the lowest. We know that he was taken captive by death in order to take death captive. It was impossible that he should see corruption because there was nothing corruptible in him. Thus, he received rescue from death righteousness and blessing in the ultimate sense when he's raised from the dead. And 40 days after his resurrection, he ascends in the Spirit's glory cloud, taking with him a band of faithful saints who had fallen asleep. And then, in the ultimate scene that we read about here, crushed serpent head in hand, with a train of faithful Behind him, our Lord, our King of glory, appears before the ancient gates and bids them open wide to receive him and all of his followers into glory, not because of their works, but because of his. This is the good news of Psalm 24. But beyond this, today, tomorrow, what does this mean? This truth of Psalm 24 is not something that is relegated to the past. Though what we read about here are past historical events prophesied by the Spirit that became reality in Christ Jesus, there are profound implications here for us. And the first one is to consider this. Open gates all through the Bible. Gates being open. Genesis chapter 2, Ezekiel 47, Revelation 21 and 22, which we heard about this morning. 
Gates are never simply entrances bringing you in somewhere in Scripture. Gates also allow you out. And I would even say what we see in Scripture is chiefly they are there to allow things out. What we see is that Jesus has gone and opened the gates before us, not simply to let us in, but to let the original perfection of Eden out into every square inch of the cosmos. That is the point. The gates of heaven were open so that the gates of hell could never prevail. They were open so that the gates of hell, in fact, would be conquered on earth as it is in heaven. And so this psalm chiefly calls us to do one thing, which is to do battle under and alongside our King Jesus every moment of every day. And this psalm is here to teach us four things about our warring on behalf of our King and with our King in a world that doesn't recognize his crown rights as their only creator, their only savior, and their only ruler. So four things we can get from the psalm together. We fight for the crown rights of King Jesus by our liturgy, under his sovereignty, by our holy living, and by our hopeful laboring. So number one, we fight for the crown rights of King Jesus by our liturgy. Think about the way the psalm is structured. We said it in the beginning. Holy places, cleanliness, uh, ascensions going up to God, gates that are barred and watched over uh, by guardians. Uh, this is all liturgical language. This is an inescapably liturgical psalm, and all the other points really flow out of this one. David is poetically describing the experience and the result of what it's like to go in and to know the one place in creation where the face of God, his covenant presence with his people, can still be known, which is at his time the tabernacle of Shiloh, which is symbolically, of course, described throughout the Psalms as Mount Zion. And having that experience, then he expands it on this cosmic level. And this sort of figurative language also, hear this clearly, it doesn't fall away in the new covenant. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that uh, when we are assembled Sunday in, Sunday out, we are assembled here, not just as a bunch of individuals, you know, who are trying to receive our spiritual transaction with God. We are assembled with saints through all the ages, with angels and archangels and festal gathering. And Hebrews 12 says we are here at the true Mount Zion. Every Sunday is an ascension into the heavenlies. So hear this, it's not just for tradition's sake or just because it's something nice to say that we begin our liturgy each week with the words, lift up your hearts. Not because we physically ascend and go somewhere, but because the covenant presence of God, what's ultimately pictured through all these things, is here in our midst, in a way, in creation, that in no other time and in no other place, He is present by His word and sacrament. Or in the words of Psalm 22, God is enthroned on the praises of his people. We are standing at gates and entering into them when we come in each Sunday. We lift up our hearts and go up as Adam was created to do, to come in and hear and eat with God and rest, not because uh, of the old Adam, but because of the new who has let us in. 
And so our primary weapon against the world's friend, as, as his warriors, is our liturgy. This is where Christ is enthroned in the midst of his enemies. And let me say this as clearly as possible. Liturgical warfare is the only kind of Christian warfare. This psalm speaks continually about a battle that's won by Christ. And the question should be immediately, when was this battle? When did he win this? When did he ascend to these gates? And when did all of this happen? It was the warfare that he waged against the kingdom of darkness by the prayers, the songs of praise, the healings, and ultimately the actions of his paschal mystery. This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus triumphed over the powers of darkness, not by some sort of carnal warfare, but by proper worship. And we are called to do exactly the same. So the initial point is this. Do not think of the Lord's Day service as something that happens alongside of, or even, if we wouldn't maybe say it this way, something that happens beneath true spiritual warfare. The Sunday service is something else. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And each time that we gather here on God's mountain, Sunday after Sunday, as we sing and recite the Word of God, we are cutting down darkness here. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 9, that men praying with uplifted hands in public worship is what topples false satanic powers. When the men stand up here and pray, that is the closest that we come to affecting politics in this service. Things change because men pray in the service, Paul says. Shouting to Yahweh in liturgical procession, the walls of Jericho fell before Israel. Singing psalms, David drove evil spirits from Saul. The temple rebuilt under Ezra. Israel has the blessing to rebuild the cultural walls under Nehemiah. It's always the same in Scripture. Do you wish to see the kingdom established? Then we must prioritize, propagate, multiply biblical Lord's Day worship first and foremost. Second, we fight for the crown rights of King Jesus through his sovereignty. The chief thing that our liturgy teaches us week in and week out, the chief thing that this psalm teaches us here in front of us is that Christ reigns over all as king. And the chief implication of this claim actually has already been made for us. Paul uses Psalm 24 verse 1 over in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, and I'm really just going to expand on the good work that he has done. I don't think I can do any better than the Apostle Paul. So, uh, there in the middle of this discourse about meat offered to idols, Paul says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Eat whatever you would like. And he is making a wonderful point. He is saying that there are no, particularly what Paul says, is there are no places or things in the new covenant that are unclean for you. Your conscience, brothers and sisters, does not have to be bound by the places you shop, by the stores that you visit, by the products that you purchase. You do not have to fear defilement from the world in your family because in the new covenant, we have the promise that wherever we go, Paul goes on to say, we are spreading life. Death does not the death no longer has dominion over us. Life goes from us in the new covenant. Some may reject that life, but it's really there. Your presence in the marketplace of the world with all of its idol offerings 
is evidence of those idols' impotence. Go in, declare the sovereignty of Christ over those places. Tell others in that marketplace that is so sinful that you will see it conquered for King Jesus, and you will work to see that a reality. This is your responsibility as his royal ambassadors, not to run, but to fight. Our institutions, our public squares, and our marketplaces are corrupted today, not because somehow the devil was stronger than the kingdom of God. They are corrupt because Christians withdrew, convinced that the sovereign creator of the universe couldn't win, or they were unfaithful in their position. But that does not have to be, and by God's grace will not be our story. Do not retreat into supposedly idol-free Christian safe zones. The earth is the Lord's and its fullness. But he continues on. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and all who dwell therein. This psalm declares not only that all places and things are clean, but all peoples are clean. The old distinctions, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, have fallen away in Christ. The psalm declares all clean. There are no persons, people groups on this planet that you need to fear. In fact, quite the opposite. All are under the crown rights of King Jesus in the new covenant. There is not a single human being who will be judged on the last day according to another standard than their allegiance to King Jesus and how faithful they were to that allegiance. And it is your duty, brothers and sisters, as the world's royal priests and prophets to speak God's word and to bring him what belongs to him by creational and redemptive rights. They will not make you unclean. You have a responsibility to go in and make them clean. It can be a particular weakness, if we can be honest for a moment. It can be a particular weakness of our denomination that we fear and flee anyone because of a feeling of contagion of uncleanness more than we fight by fleeing into the leper camps with healing. Strategic withdrawal is one thing, but a bunker mentality is quite another. And so if you want to know where you fall on that scale, here's a very, very tangible application of this about not fearing places, peoples, or bringing them near to you. When was the last time that you've had an outsider from the TRC group over at your house when you've had other families from the church over? Take it a step further back even. That's a little too crazy for you. When was the last time that you have taken something from your table to a neighbor across the street, down the road, that guy at work that... Yeah, all of these people are our responsibility. We should not be surprised and we do not have the right to sit back in a vague disgust at the world when we are the ones responsible for them. We should not be surprised that they do not share our table of the kingdom inside the gates of the heavenlies when we are not even willing to have them share at our tables of hospitality. So, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. We, friends, are responsible. The sovereignty of Christ teaches us that we must become incarnate into the mess if we are ever going to bear witness 
to all peoples in all places. Or we, like Israel of old, will be continued to be disciplined with constant subjugation under foreign powers. Third, we fight for the crown rights of King Jesus by our holy living. The Psalm of Ascent, uh, Psalm 24, more, most tangibly recreates us and the world around us because it does something to us. Beholding the glory of the Lord and the assembly of the saints, we are changed from one degree of glory to another as we ascend. And of course, the first thing that happens each week, week in and week out, we come up and what happens? We are like Isaiah in the presence of God, knowing one thing very clearly, we have no right to be here. We have no business being in front of our God and King. Our hands are unclean. Our hearts are divided. Our mouths are full of deceit. And our wills have spent the week seeking anything but the Father's will. And as such, we're called to confess our unclean hands, our dingy hearts, our sordid souls, and our deceitful tongues. Pardoned again by the Lord's mercy, we receive clean hands and we are reminded that our mission is first and ultimately one of reconciliation of free forgiveness. Hearing the prayers and the word of God, our hearts are stirred and purified as we're taught how to pray and walk rightly in the crooked world, receiving bread and wine with thanksgiving. We are chiefly trained to be people who are countercultural, who do not lift up our souls to falsehood, but take in with glad gratitude all of the small and simple pleasures of the world because they are given to us by a Father who loves us. And finally, blessed by God, we go in peace to love and serve the world. This is how we are recreated. Yet, hear clearly, friends, David does not mince words. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6, only those who have clean hands, a pure heart, devoted souls, and tongues free of falsehood will not simply stand before the Lord on a Sunday, but only those people will stand on the day of judgment. What we've said up to this point is completely true. Jesus fulfills and gives us the positional holiness by a free gift of imputation. This psalm is all about Him. It is yours by faith in Him. That is absolutely true. However, practical holiness is not optional in the Christian life. In fact, Hebrews 12, 14 solemnly warns us that there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Peter tells us in the first chapter of his first epistle that there is nothing at all to assure or confirm our election in Christ except for the efforts of sanctification. We are given the gift of righteousness, brothers and sisters, in order to become truly righteous. It is not legal fiction. Living faith has lively fruit. True faith is not simply repentant, but obedient faith. And so the question before us is, are your hands clean? Are your hearts divided? Is your soul sallowed down and weighed down with any unconfessed sin? Are you being true to the vows that you have made to God and to your neighbor? Or are you making a mockery of them? Because only these will receive blessing and righteousness from the God of salvation. Because a salvation that sanctifies is the only kind of salvation that God bestows. So remember that you were baptized, friends, 
into the warrior priesthood of King Jesus. He has again invited you this morning to cleanse your hands and amend your ways and to hear the word of the Apostle James as he echoes Psalm 24. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We are invited to embody the character of the perfect climber, Jesus, in this psalm. But this psalm also, as we near the end, mercifully reminds us and lays out a plan for renewing our obedience. The passage that we just read from James actually begins with the words, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And look again in verse 6, the totality of those who will appear before God, we're told, they are those who seek the God of Jacob. The fruit of your life is rooted in what you seek. Holy living is centered on holy seeking. And this is a profound point made throughout all of scriptures. Wherever your affections are aimed, your actions will follow. If you want to know what you're seeking, look at your actions. See if they line up. If you see yourself out of step or backslidden with the character described in Psalm 24, then do as Paul instructs you in Colossians 3. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are on, not on things that are on the earth, but on things above. Carve out time to intentionally set your mind on the ascended Christ, not simply on Sunday, though this is paramount and important and the center of it all, but also Monday through Saturday. Set aside time, avail yourself of every opportunity to constantly reset your distracted affections for Christ, to rein them back in. We are fools if we believe that God will bless and bestow his kingdom and all of its benefits in our culture while we ourselves are not fighting the harder battles of personal holiness. Fourth and finally, we fight for the crown rights of King Jesus by our hopeful laboring. Look at the end, Psalm 7 through 10. We may worship, we may work, we may witness, wait, pray, put sin to death because our labor is not in vain. This is the good news of Psalm 24, brothers and sisters. We do not worship in order to jimmy open the doors of heaven, to just put our foot in while God's trying to close it on us. We do not live holy lives to convince the King of glory that we are worthy of assent. No, my friends, our God, your God, calls you to worship and to work to follow the King of glory because He has gone in before you already. He has opened wide the gates of paradise to let you in. He became man and lived a perfect life to fling those doors open because He loves you. He, by His ascent, the enemies and principalities have been dethroned and depotentialized forever. The enthronement of the King of Glory and us as his royal priesthood has done this. The only weapon that the devil has against us is either to deceive you into believing that it isn't true or to dis discourage and disfranchise you to make you believe that you have no share in this kingdom. But my friends, you do have a share in this kingdom. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you this kingdom as Jesus tells us. You were baptized into this kingdom. The fruits of living faith are in your life, however small 
and shriveled up those little grapes may be. They can get better. Week in and week out, you sit around the table of the king, not merely as beggars, but by those who have been transformed by mercy into holy royalty. You are saints. You are holy people who belong at the holy table. He has done battle as your king so that you may faithfully enter the final fray with him and redeem the pieces of the world and the pieces of your heart that do not belong to him as Lord. Believe this good news. Let the words of Psalm 24 cascade over your heart this week and this day as you realize and actualize the good news of it. Worship and work because all things have, will be, and forever brought under King Jesus, the Lord of glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be uh, brought back together in you under your gracious rule, who lives and reigns with the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Amen.